Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Punk Rock Horror Podcast. I am the Undead Matt. And I'm Krampus Cody. And today we are here to remind you that if you are going on a summer vacation and you are traveling towards the beautiful hot place of Texas, that we advise you to stay within urban elements and maybe not go into the country, especially if you start getting pulled over by random angry police because i hate to tell you but he's gonna take you back home to meet his creepy little children and they're gonna want to cut you up and eat you and wear your face and you're now in the texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> i was like okay for a second there i was like holy shit you're going to get real for a second aren't you because there's some shit going on and then all of a sudden like and then his family's gonna eat you i was like oh okay all right. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, we are joined by a fantastic guest today. One that's been—it's it, been too long coming to bring him on here, and honestly, we're we're kind of villains for not bringing him on sooner. So, with that in mind, we put our mad scientist brains together to resurrect from the dead and bring him to life and onto the show. The amazing Zach Eastman from Real Nerds. How's it going, Zach? Oh my God! I, I so not to disillusion the, the 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 spell of this show and in the introduction, but when you when you dropped in some Texas Chainsaw Massacre for me, I just started giggling. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, I know they're doing the Arlie Ermy one. All right, <laughs> it's be an interesting chat. <laughs> look, uh, look, the original is a classic, but Arlie Hammer, he's he's just Ar it, his acting Ar is Ar is something to be seen. Oh yeah, Ermy is. Ermy is Ermy is that uh, that iteration of the franchise. Like he is the reason you're watching those two movies for and, me. Like, and you know what? Like, I don't care. I don't care who knows it. That's actually my favorite version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, I watched cool. that. Yeah, I watched that remake to fucking death when I first like after I first saw it, and then I kept showing it to everybody, like my old best friend Michael. Like, I was like, "You want to see something scary?" And he's like, "Is it?" What is it? And I was like, it's based off a real story. <laughs> and he's and he's just like, no, no. I mean, yes, of course we're gonna watch it, but no. <laughs> like I don't want to, but I really want to. But I don't want to. <laughs> I know, and I was like, don't worry, it happens. Uh, even though it says it's in Texas, it's not. It didn't take place in Texas. The stuff took place in a different state. And he's like, I don't care. That means it's closer to me. <laughs> It's it's better than the Wisconsin Farm Boy Massacre. Like that's the that's the difference. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, today's episode is also brought to you by SlashingCast.net. Uh, that is where you can find everything Punk Art Court podcast from episodes to merch to even Patreon links. Uh, and with that in mind, listeners, we again, yeah, we're back with a new episode with our amazing guest. We're gonna hear from Zach here in just a moment. But again, I want to just give a huge thanks to all of you ghouls, gals, creeps, and mutants who uh, have been supporting the show and who continue to support the show and it's and it's odd macabre evolution through the years so i mean it's hard to believe that we still started in 2017 and we're now in 2021 and i still oh my babies, god man but, seriously uh, yeah, I, I, I don't i don't know why anybody like looks up to us cause I'm like, <laughs> it's just like i feel I, I, honestly i need to take more pride in it like that's really what it is it's not like i'm ashamed do you, but it's do just you need like, a cheerleader matt because i'll be your cheerleader I, for the day i need i, I think we do I'll, i think we need more cheerleaders all right i'm gonna follow you around work all day and just remind you of your badass race if you, if you have any doubt <laughs> you need to stop that shit immediately <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Only I, I am allowed to hate myself. 
<laughs> uh, false sir. That's my job on this show. Hey, wait a minute. Look, there's too many of us hating ourselves. Are, One of us is going to have to go back home. Are we going to have a self-loathing fight? <laughs> sir, I hate the way my hair parts. Yeah, well, I hate how my thighs look at jeans. Look, you guys yeah, are both well. wrong because I have a bigger nose than most. Like... <laughs> It's like, well, you know what? I have a collection of Tickle Me Emos. How about that? Okay, now that's something I have to just acquiesce to the victory on that one. I'm just going to go with the classic of like, yeah, well, I go and cry in the rain so no one can see my tears. <laughs> oh, that is harsh. Oh. <laughs> that's an old one. That's a classic. Oh my god, that nearly made me cry. <laughs> For well, too bad it's not raining, huh? And everybody wonders why I take a long time in the shower. <laughs> yeah. I wait till it gets cold. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> okay, this is getting too real. It's getting too real. Hey, this is how we work out of depression, guys. We have a good laugh about it. <laughs> and speaking of too real, yeah, Zach, you are the host of the Real Nerds. You are a, a film aficionado. You are a critic. You are a fan of classic radio. I mean, uh, I could, I could. I feel like if I keep adding more names, it's going to fill up the entirety of this episode. Honestly, you're that aside. You're a fantastic podcaster. You're an amazing host, and for us, you've been a good friend of the show. So, again, welcome onto the show. It's a blast having you here. Well, thank you, sir. It's it's an honor to be here. I, I enjoy what you guys do, and to to be able to be here and get to chat some horror with some wonderful fellows is a real good treat for me. Like, I know, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think anybody who's had an interaction with you would probably say the same thing that like Zach is a very loving dude. He's very bubbly. He has a passion for film. He you know he's such a good guy. And and I mean he's all right. Like, all right, we have to go back to that <laughs> self loathing fight right now. But but no, but legitimately, uh, I mean the way the way we met was uh, when we first, when the show was in its like second year. Uh, we were doing giveaways for for uh, to see horror movies in theaters yep. when that was a thing, um, and we're still we're getting back to that. But uh, we did a giveaway for the movie It, and uh, at the time, you know, you, uh, you you won the giveaway, and we did a little small meet and greet. We got to I got to meet you. I got to say hi to you. You also got to meet, uh, or you already knew Aaron, but you got to say hi to Aaron. Yeah, and um, it was it was that was the first incarnation of our meeting. The of yeah, us that, being it, on. Go ahead. Sorry. It was, I was going to say it was the, it was it was the origin story for us, and then uh, but I didn't meet Cody that night. And in fact, no. up until this year, I had never met Cody in person because um, <laughs> yeah. because as you said, I do real nerds with um, I, I I'm a co-host of real nerds with a bunch of other um, lovely gentlemen out here in Denver, Colorado, and one of our lovely female contributors, Corinne. Um, and um, but I do another show and. Uh, I'd had Matt on for two of my Hitchcock discussions. And then finally I met Cody to talk about Gajira and the blob with you both. And mm -hmm. the, I, I was, I was admittedly nervous to meet Cody because I'd met Matt before, <laughs> but I was like, I don't know, Cody, this might be awkward. I'm not. And the, and the immediately, he's, he's an asshole. Immediately, <laughs> he, immediately he walks in the door and we're starting to have a chat about Zack Snyder's justice league. And I'm like, this guy's, this guy's going to be a fun blast to talk to. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I should have, I should have just like built him up. Be like, look, Cody's, Cody's genuinely good. 
Um, you just, there's just some things you got to be worried about with him. You can't. He has a couple say, trigger you know, words. Dude, he has a couple trigger. Don't look him in the eyes. Don't make fast <laughs> movements. Wait, wait, wait. You guys aren't near a full moon, are you? Oh, no. Oh, shit. <laughs> He gets a little hairy. It might be patchy, but it's hairy. Hey, Cody, you look just like Lon Chaney Jr. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, more more to your credit and, and your endeavors, you're a man with many hats. You you definitely have your feet in a lot of works. And so <laughs> it, it it's hard to just pick one thing that you do because obviously you're talking about real nerds. You did the Shambly Silhouette, uh, which I was part of, and then... Obviously, you already mentioned it. We, me and Cody then came on to talk about uh, the blob and Gojira. And um, so, yeah, we're, it's now just kind of finally getting to know you and who you are. And so it, I, I feel kind of lazy as a host because I'm like, what, what do we pick on? Because, like, again, my man, you, you, Spin you the wheel. you're doing it all. I mean, you're also a director. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you, you just finished wrapping up a short film. I did. Um, so let's let's start there. Uh, what what was this short film? Uh, what can you talk about with the short film? Oh, so, uh, I should say. Yeah, so it, uh, the short film is a short film written by um, Hayden Winston, and it was brought to me by my uh, Hayden Winston and Risa Scott, both of whom I've collaborated with on on several projects. And um, it's a drama about a woman coming to terms with the death of her husband um, by making a connection in a very unexpected place, and. Um, you know, it, it it's funny because it's it's uh, it's a story about grief and overcoming that with a sense of hope. And it's a film that I was very attached to when it was presented to me before the pandemic hit. And we tried to get it made last year, but the number of locations that we had combined with COVID concerns meant that there was absolutely no way we could responsibly make the movie. So we found another way to make a film with responsible COVID restrictions intact. Now that things had eased up, it made us it made it easier to do the film that we wanted to do this time around, but with still observing proper precaution. And it's a uh, it was a it was an intriguing endeavor primarily because um, I've done mostly dramas with a tinge of dark edge to them. Um, I don't. I haven't classified it as horror because it's 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 difficult to justify it. I think it's more just some form of realism kind of creeping through with a dark sense of humor at times, um, or in some other cases, just flat out dark. Um, this one was the first time that I'd ever had to do a film that had some semblance of hope about it that was on its face. Um, so that was the big test for those waters. And I, I got to tell you that the crew that I worked with made it super easy to kind of fall into uh, the lapse of just being a creative director this time around. And uh, I got to, I got to work with some amazing people who brought other things to the table because I don't rely on myself as the sole voice on that. Everybody has a say in what goes on that screen because it's not a one person job. So that's kind of how I approached it. And this particular one I think is a testament to everybody's abilities there. And I was kind of just there to be like, all right, action. Okay, cut. All right, what's the next step? <laughs> you know, and I, I, I'm making sure that like what I would like to assemble in that editing room is there. But, but so yeah, it's, it's, it, and especially given the year we've had with COVID, I, I do think that the story has something to reach out to for people. Um, I don't tend to put 
like I'm not going to like weigh in on an artistic integrity with it, but I do think that there is on its surface this this like very heartfelt expression from the writer and from the star of the film Risa that really shines through, especially given how rough the last year has been. I mean, you guys know about it. We've talked about this on mic and off mic about how rough COVID was on all of us in a certain, in, in some respect or another, like it was a true horror show in, in a lot of respects. Um, so to be able to bring something positive was the big, uh, the, the big accomplishment there. So like, I mean, you could say that this short film definitely was kind of like a, a coming, uh, I don't want to, I want to, I don't want to say redemption because it's not like you're really redeeming anything, but it was like a light in the darkness for you, uh, creatively for what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, actually I would agree because there's another project that I'm still working on on and off as a short film. I've got. I've, I, over the pandemic, I wrote two features with a co-writer out in New Hampshire, and I wrote a treatment for a silent musical, which, if you think that sounds strange, just wait until I tell you that there's like 500 pages of contextual history attached to it. But, because um, it, it has to do with a certain period in cinema where we were in a transition between technologies. But, um, the uh, there was another script that I had written about grief, and... It's a horror film. It's a horror short designed to be in black and white and to emanate a uh, an air of Val Luton, um, a little bit of Universal Monsters in terms of look, um, and the feel would be Luton. But the subject matter is, uh, it's, it's very grim. And in order to do a story about grief, I didn't want to go back down a dark rabbit hole like I'd had before. And the script for... This one, which is Heavy Hangs the Sky, the one that we just did, that one was a much more positive thing to do, especially given what the year has been. The last thing I would want to do is go back down a darker rabbit hole. So this was a this was a sort of redemption in that respect, because it allowed me to try to to tackle uh, a piece about grief and recovery that didn't completely put me on uh put me on a spiral um because i do get invested in my work at times but i've learned over time as a maturing adult not to do that um but i I think that this one provided the best possible outlet that you could have because it ultimately deals in responsibility and for care and compassion which is something that i would like to think that i represent in some form or fashion (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> but then I make a joke here and there and I'm just suddenly like unsure of, of how decent a person I am at times. Um, so I think that that's, uh, I think that that's, that's a very astute observation is that it's kind of like feeling is like, it's a, it's an affirmation of what we still hold on to, even though we've been through hell and back over the year, because that's, that's the ultimate thing is, is that I don't think any of us lost our humanity in that respect. Like, I don't think we truly lost it because we still care about each other. We still reach out when we know somebody is hurting. And I think the last year taught us how to do that even more often. Um, so the film is kind of serves in that similar capacity of, you know, breaking out of that isolation to a certain respect in an emotional, in, a, in an emotional way. I would agree. I agree with that. And I'm going to mm-hmm. give Cody a chance to jump in here for a moment too. But I, I do want to say, you know, I, I think, 
I think when it comes to uh, there, there's there's a lot of things to take away. First and foremost, I mean, one thing that we've talked about, uh, me, even me and Cody especially, is that there was I felt like this like kind of like collective conscience of all of us who went through COVID coming out of it just wanting to be better people, wanting to chase things and do things we've never done before, wanting to refine ourselves, refine our fundamentals, and just collectively be better in whatever facet that fits in our lives and whatever context that brings along with it as well. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And But I would also say, though, like, I, I think part of the... I don't think a lot of people lost their humanity. I think I think a good majority <laughs> chose to give it up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, I kind of I kind of <laughs> felt like through the past year, everyone kind like a lot of people just went like, you know what? Fuck everyone else. I would have all about me now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and but, and I, but that I, is there is yeah, and I and I totally understand. I I guess I the way I the way I should have presented it was that like there's a well good, no no hold on yeah, no, yeah no you're good. Well, I was like even though there was a lot of a lot of that like I still like throughout the past year I definitely saw a lot more people like actually finding their humanity or refinding it and like actually mm-hmm. being more open to like all the issues that were coming out and stuff like that. Like while mass media definitely would rather focus on all the negatives and shit like that, including like all the, you know, the new cult that was born last year. (laughs) I'm not going too much into that, but like with all that stuff coming out, I still saw like, I was seeing more and more people like siding against the cult that you never thought would be on that side, you know? And they're like, Oh shit. I needed to check myself and like and started being more open to that. Like uh, you're right, a lot of a lot of people really did start showing their humanity in positive, more positive ways over the past year. Even though the negatives were more focused on, like mm-hmm. a lot of good things came out, and a lot of people like, I mean, shit, there are famous actors just for the fuck of it going online and streaming, reading books to kids. You know, <laughs> like, and, you could, and I think, that would have never but, happened before without money. You can watch Anthony but, Hopkins do fucking soliloquies on Twitter. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like there's a lot of good that also came out of last year. Like yep. me and Matt, we didn't want to just focus on the negative part, <laughs> uh, but, but bringing it back. I, uh, what, what I think though, uh, what the point I was trying to make mm-hmm. is that, the biggest thing that i think people needed to really take away as well is to be gentle with ourselves i mean we talk about a lot Mm -hmm. here on the show i talk about a lot and and see and see your remark about you know how you like you said you made jokes and i made you reevaluate um your morals as a person i i that's good i always i always encourage people to you know self-evaluate um if you feel like you need to really do that and do that growth but at the same time comes with that is being gentle with yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, there's been times that I've made jokes with code uh, with Cody and confidence because that's our humor. And we have uh, the intention of, of not trying to be rude or mean or cruel to anyone else. And so with that in mind, like, obviously I'm not talking about anything that's like, you know, against any certain groups, of course, but like for the most part, you know, I think about things I said back in the past, you know, I think about jokes I made back in the past and how much it just makes me cringe because a lot of the times <laughs> yeah. it was just, it was just me being a young, uh, hot headed idiot who, mm. who thought he was being funny and not really caring about what weight my words carry. And then you think about it now and it's hard to think about those moments, right? Because you, you feel like kind of, you feel like a bad person. Can I you know? can I bring it mm-hmm. in could I could I summarize it in a way that would make sense to us as movie nerds? 
because yes. I think that this is actually this is appropriate because I was having this discussion on the Twitter page that I run for my show yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Um, one of our listeners, um, Stacy, she's a lovely human being, one of the sweetest people in the world. She was posting about our recent episode on Night of the Hunter, and part of that discussion pertained to one of my guests for that show, Jack. Um, he runs another show out of Boulder where the goal is to introduce cinema to people and to create an opening and open environment and an environment that's free of vitriol. And I, you know, I think when you're growing up as a film fan, you feel so close to it that there are times when you feel like you need to be defensive at going like, how dare you've never seen mm -hmm. this movie? Like, how dare you've never seen this Cronenberg movie or that Carpenter movie here? But I've learned over time that that is not the answer because film is about community. It was literally an industry based around the idea of sitting together in a dark room to watch the same show. And when you become that exclusionist or you say things that make you seem elitist by comparison to somebody who may be a normal moviegoer, that, that, that takes away the connecting, the, the gap that can be connected. Like you can't, you, you can't, we, we've, we've really reached the point where it doesn't make sense for us to feel entitled to the art that we consume. And so within that sense of like, I look back and go like, you know, I probably should have encouraged more people to watch Golden Age of Hollywood movies instead of just telling them how dare you've never seen Casablanca. Like, you know, I, I get it. It's, it's, it's a movie of its time. You're not going to mm -hmm. like, not everybody's going to latch onto it the way you do. So rather than play the card of being exclusionist, I've started learning over the last five to six years, especially to really just be like, nah, man, come on over to my house. We'll watch it together. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. dude, it's uh, funny enough, like just the way you went about that, it's actually, it <clears throat> just reminded me of like just the evolution of theater and like, you know, how you're, you know, the whole elitist thing. It's funny because an, a quote of Cronenberg, he talks about in a really good interview that he had with, uh, oh my, Mitt, I have to look up, look up the other guy's name. But anyway, so during this interview, he talks about uh, Mick Garris. He did an interview with Mick Garris about how originally, you know, movies were for were originally made for like the lower class people is like the, uh, you know, the workers, the help those are the ones that would go see movies while the higher, you know, the higher echelon people would go to the theater. Mm -hmm. And so it's just really funny that we've evolved to the point where like movie now it's like, the elitists are like movie snobs like oh you didn't see the movies at this time of movie so you're not a true film enthusiast and it's like go fuck yourself movies have been for all of us yeah like, that, that always that's the moment that's the moment where you go like all right it's time for bed because it, yeah it, it, <laughs> that's not my quote by the way that's that's a quote of my good friend marshall like you know like if you can't act like an adult don't do that and like yeah. and i and i think and cronenberg's astute you know like we, movies were made Literally, they were called Nickelodeons. You would get in there for five cents. The Warner Brothers started out of a theater where they literally would show it off of, like, show it in the environment that they could and then have a little vaudeville show with Jack Warner singing to get people to leave, you know, like, mm -hmm. so that they could bring in new people for the next show. Like, this is not, this wasn't what theater was then. Like, and, like, really, movies were running in, running in tandem for a time with vaudeville before vaudeville is completely ousted when you have radio and movies basically colliding as a force against vaudeville which was affordable theater like it was like you would you could go there and for like a small price you could see 
a bunch of acts. Like it's like going through a YouTube, um, a YouTube dive in certain respects. Like you get a different act each time. And the idea that we have become on, on film discourse to the point of Marvel versus art cinema or, uh, you know, like uh, <laughs> watching pre-code movies versus the American new wave versus modern blockbusters. It's like, guys, the, the literally nobody should be allowed to make movies if you think about it because we're giving away millions of dollars to do imagination things. <laughs> if, if you think about the concept of film, it's literally say, somebody saying, here's a billion dollars, go take go take the thing you think about at night and make it a reality. And that that in itself is crazy. So why, why I understand the point of art because you should elevate what you can, but there's a difference between promoting art and promoting snobbery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And like horror films, you know, they've become really fun to discuss over the last couple of years, but we were still in a period back in the early 2010s where horror films were still trashed upon. And I'm, now we're getting some uh, form of... I think they're of, still trashed upon. I, Let's be I, honest. They're I, still trashed upon. <laughs> I, I, think, I think so to an extent. I think, there's been an, uh, I think there's been an uptick in appreciation for the art form, and I think Jordan Peele was a big reason that that was able to kick off, which is great. It's one of the reasons why I love him. Um, I would I, I would have to only respectfully disagree in the regard that with more art in a more art house themed horror movies coming out, there has been more of a divide in the community than it has been more trash done. I mean, yeah, there is still yeah. the stigma of horror movies being, you know, blood, guts and boobs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But with Ari Aster, you know, really kind of changing uh, how horror movies could be made and what could be brought into them with Hereditary yeah. and Midsummer. Um, yeah. You all, you also saw so many horror elitists at the same time, like trashing those movies because they, you know, they weren't volatile. They weren't, you know, intense enough. They weren't gory enough. You know, it went over their heads. It was too artsy. Um, you know, there's in same was said for get out and us. And at that point it came to the, this, this moment where you saw so many people split herring it, mm. where it was just like. Well, I didn't like this movie because it was too preachy about its social commentary. Or I didn't like yeah. this movie because the message that it had just went right over my head. I don't get it. It wasn't scary. There wasn't a lot of blood. And then it just kind of like turns to this dribble where it's like everybody had a specific thing they were hoping for from these movies. Right. And instead, yeah. um, it, it wasn't about the movie itself. It wasn't about the, it wasn't just about the impression they got it was i wasn't scared that wasn't yeah. a horror movie that didn't feel like a horror movie and so with evolution which change with change comes pushback and mm -hmm. and we see a lot of that so i i think mm -hmm. horror movies are definitely still evolving and losing the stigma of uh boobs guts and blood and and uh i said boots boobs um, <laughs> same diff same in diff. a horror movie <laughs> you can still you can in a horror movie you could still be killed by either or so yeah mm -hmm. i think <laughs> you know I, but like very true, very yeah. true. <laughs> but like um what i wanted to add on to that too is like because i so i'm glad you brought up you know midsummer and um midsummer hereditary uh oh my and the uh, jordan peele's movies because i think one of the biggest reasons why like I can uh, the biggest arguments for these movies, especially those four, is that of especially in Matt, you said you know they're not scary enough and stuff like that when it comes to the elitists, is because those four movies, there's this weird fine line between a thriller 
and a horror movie mm-hmm. and i feel like those four movies and like they and it's weird like they're really to me and to me there's no real difference between a thriller and a horror movie besides one might be a little bit more action-packed you know what i mean yeah because they're spo like they're spo- they're both technically tank uh pulling on the same strings but those four they're more psychological thrillers instead of like straight up horror movies. And it's, and it's the same thing that actually happens in Cronenberg's film, his uh, cinema filmography, like his yeah. evolution of his movies. Cause he goes from straight up horror body horror stuff to more thriller things that we'll talk about when we get to them. But like, that's what I mean. Like that's, I kind of agree with Matt more because I just, because yeah, like same with Parasite. You know, that's considered the first horror movie to get an Oscar, but it's it's definitely more like on the thriller sides, you know. And I think that's where the division is: is that we're having to re reestablish what's a horror movie and what's a thriller. And I think that's what everyone's like, but butting heads about. And well, and I, I you're I think you're right. And I guess how I should um, the way I would clarify what I meant was like I feel like the I, I guess I see it more in looking in looking back into horror's past and finding the gem qualities in what people perceived as trash back in the day. Um, gotcha. In, in, yeah. yeah. In terms yeah. of in terms of the modern output, I definitely have seen the pushback on the art house horror and that dividing line. And my, you know, like I, my my co host Ryan has brought this up before from from real nerds. He's like, you know, horror is a tough audience. You know, like you love what you love. Like a horror audience loves what it loves, and you know, like I I find it to be interesting to tap into the different forms that it takes, whether it is Ari Aster or if it's something as like I haven't seen Fear Street yet, but it sounds like it's a a hell of a time and a blast, and mm-hmm. it could have the same merit as an Ari Aster because I think that people. I think ultimately people attach themselves to what they're going to, but I think you can find the gem quality in each piece of art, regardless of what its uh, outlook looks to you on the surface. And Mm -hmm. as far as the message is getting across, you know, like that might be something that the audience who perceives it and doesn't like it, if they are willing to go back to it at a certain point, it might catch on with them rather than, you know, them just dismissing it completely. I'd like to hope that people can rediscover and reevaluate something like I rewatched The Black Cat within the last two years, which is a horror film from 1934. And when I first saw it, I didn't dig into the themes at first because I was 15, 16. I didn't understand that that movie is about incest and satanic cults and torture. Like, it, 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 To me, it was about Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff fighting each other. And now I look at it and go, I'm like, this is a fucked up movie from 1934. Holy shit. And I think that over time, people that... I agree with Matt. The pushback is always going to happen when you have an evolution and a change because that's we're seeing that with streaming versus theatrical. Like that, mm-hmm. that same argument is being had but like i guess my optimism tells me that and maybe it's because i you know run in groups that don't have a lot of issues with accepting all the art in all of its forms which i guess in a way is a blessing but to me like i think that the acceptance rate feels feels higher to me than it has in years um now that being said i i I love that Cody brought up the fine line between thriller and horror because especially with Cronenberg, but also like, you know, you mentioning Parasite. Parasite is a horror movie to me because Parasite has elements that scare us on a daily basis within the form of a capitalist society and the idea of an upper class versus a lower class. To me, that's scary because 
the themes that we're seeing in these recent outputs of whether they're horror, thriller, thriller or horror, or a mesh of all of these elements combined, you know, we're still tapping into the daily fears that we have that surround us. And that's why horror remains among the greatest genres to exist is because it's the only genre that's unafraid to touch a subject that we think about, but we don't necessarily want to be confronted with when we're sitting down. And mm -hmm. sometimes the best hook for that is a horror movie because you can, you can cloak it in something familiar like a werewolf story or the Frankenstein story or a Jason Voorhees or a Michael Myers. Like you can encapsulate your fears in the form of a, a mask or a monster that manifests itself. And that, that's why to me, like the evolution that we're seeing, I think you're going to start seeing a lot more people who have that disdain flip their script pretty quick because they'll soon realize what we're realizing that there is an evolution point. And at that point, I'm going to tell those people like, yeah, come on in the group. Let's watch some more of these movies. This is going to be fucking fun. And that, that to me would be the goal. And also like, we've had the experience with the horror winning an Oscar before because silence of the lambs exists in a world where we've had mm -hmm. that exists. Like there's no reason for this genre to ever be denigrated ever again to my mind at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because silence of the lambs also still considered a thriller mm -hmm. than a horror. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, that's, and, that's, <laughs> and, and that's the way that like, and, and that's the way people want to like, th that's the way, like I know that's the way Oscar justified its decision. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then like, and because, because God, this is, I want this to be a top. We're going to have to bring you back and have this as an actual topic where we just dissect the difference between horror and thriller. It's a fine, it's be, a, that would be a fun, it's a fine line. We'll get to blows with each other. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think that'd be a fun episode where we just like, all right, what's the difference? Because <laughs> there's a lot more to unpack with that. <laughs> here's, here's the, here's um, the question. Cause psycho from 1960 is a horror movie, but psycho from 1998 is not a horror or a thriller it's just a mess so how do we deal with that <laughs> scenario <laughs> you, you know i like I, I like how i like how we're like yeah let's listen about let's hear about all your creative outlets and what you're doing zach and i bring up the movie and it's just like we got on a tangent about horror <laughs> and, I mean that, and i mean that in the highest regard i actually do because this is like one of the best things that i love about hearing when you talk uh, especially on the shows that that you're on uh when you talk in the shows that you're on uh, because you uh, you really show your analytical mind, Zach. You you've done your research. You know what you're talking about. Um, you know you're one of the few people that were humbled enough to be able to call colleague as well. Oh, um, thank you, sir. That that if I if I know we're going on your show, I look at Cody and I'm like, we really got to do our fucking research like, more than we normally do. More than what we normally don't, do. We really don't. Gotta. You come in and with a fresh I, mind, and it really helps because then we go into the what ifs. I will tell you. Can I tell you something? <laughs> on yesterday's Ballyhoo review, when I had you guys on, one of my favorite moments was going into a tangent on Loomis finding other monsters to fight Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I shot him eight times. <laughs> we, can bring in, we can bring in that Claude freak. Uh, I think you know we have to give that of a dream. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think it's, yet, uh, um, it's wonderful. Uh, and I think for uh, because we we do start we got to move on. Um, I think if mm -hmm, yes <laughs> if any if anybody's gonna follow you and listen to you, Zach, um, what they've heard here is what they can expect from you. Whether it is you behind the camera using your uh, creative directorial skills to bring a short film together, or just talking about movies, or even old time radio, you know you 
uh, you, you know what you're talking about and you you're so passionate about it that it's that it's entertaining to just listen to you because I mean uh, it's almost never a dull moment listening to you and <laughs> Uh, and trust me, somebody speaking as somebody with ADHD who already struggles with retaining focus every now and then, uh, listening to your show, um, I mean, it's before I know it, it, an hour has passed, and I didn't even realize an hour has passed. So I, I think, um, without a mind, where where can everybody go to hear more of your magnificent voice and follow and support what you're doing, Zach? Magnificent is a strong word. Um, <laughs> you can. <laughs> um, uh, so like I, I'm on the Real Nerds podcast each week. It's R E E L Nerds. Um, we review the uh, a, a new release each week. Usually that's whatever's main in the theater. So like tomorrow I'm going to be indulging myself in Space Jam: A New Legacy. So I'll be welcome back <laughs> to the jam, as it were, and allowed to slam. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and then yesteryear Ballyhoo review is, is an extension off of something that I started on real nerds, um, where I was covering Alfred Hitchcock. We cover a film pre 1968, so it can be early cinema, golden age of Hollywood near the decline of golden age, Hollywood, basically anything up into the American new wave, um, to talk about the earliest origin points of film dissect what lessons they taught us that we're still utilizing positively, but also reckoning with elements of the films that have dated and that are, um, that have to be addressed and talked about from a modern context using historical background and what is available to us to come to an understanding about what the content is. We cover some uncomfortable subjects on the show at times. Um, we did an episode on The Searchers for four hours because you've got to talk about what The Searchers is because it, because of the two people who are at the creative force of it, being John Wayne and John Ford, who have problematic histories to say the absolute least. Um, but we also talk about fun films. Like we did, uh, you and you, we all did Gajira and the Blob, and that was a wonderful discussion about. I mean, Gajira was a little bit more heavy, but the blob, we were able to just kind of kick back and enjoy like the, the Steve McQueen of it all. And, you know, <laughs> and, and we, we do the, we do the, we do the history and we do the context, but we also kick back and have some laughs on it because one thing you have to do is to be able to discuss something uncomfortable or comfortable. It's good to have a good laugh. I'm a big proponent of laughing. So, um, mm. you know, like when we were doing our discussion on the blob, another great thing about your episode was we went into a spiel about Vin Diesel and the Fast and Furious movies and how they fall into the universe of the blob. <laughs> and just like only in a podcast could that happen and only with the kind of environment that we that I've created for the show. But like it comes from the guests. It doesn't has nothing to do with me. It comes from what the guests bring to it, like what you guys brilliantly brought to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's each week. And uh and on top of that, I'm just, you know, running around doing film shit. <laughs> where, uh, where can everybody go to uh, listen to these episodes? Yeah, so you can go to uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Um, the Real Nerds is on all of those as well as iHeartRadio. Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review is on Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. And um, I'm currently looking into iHeartRadio at the moment. Um, and you can also find us on our website, which is ballyhoreviewpodcast.com. Uh, review, by the way, is spelled R-E-V-U-E because I thought I was being fucking clever. And, <laughs> and as it turns out, I was why just fucking confusing. <laughs> why did, why, you should have made it with an H so it could be re -hue. Oh, God. Where were you in the, where were you in the marketing campaign? <laughs> um, but yeah, and Real Nerds is realnerdspodcast.com. You find us each week on both shows. 
Um, and uh, currently, this uh, this week on Ballyhoo, we're actually going to be talking about W.C. Fields and It's a Gift. So we're going to be talking about some 30s comedy and talking about Fields' legacy. He has an inter- interesting history around him because of where his origin point was and also the his decline from alcoholism is a very interesting story. Brilliant. Yeah. Nice. Listeners, we'll have those links in the episode notes below. So ghouls, gals, creeps, mutants, please check him out. Please check out Zach and what he's been doing. I mean, seriously, he's he's like a hit. He's another hidden gem here in Colorado, especially within the community of podcasting. I'm I'm a little mad that not enough people are bringing him on as a special guest, especially (laughs) more film podcasts. Like, uh, even as biased as it is, you're missing out. This Zach has like an encyclopedia amount of knowledge when it comes to to movies um he's even taught me some things that i never knew and i've been i mean cody me and you've been studying and watching horror movies are both the majority of our lives really (laughs) just don't mention the name jack benny and you'll be fine you can get me down to a two-hour chat (laughs) (laughs) so with that in mind i think we can uh go ahead and move on to our main topic for today cody what are we talking about so um ghouls gals creeps and mutants as we've dropped throughout the entire conversation beforehand today we are going to be talking about one of the greatest horror legends himself david cronenberg the creator of or at least the guy who made popular who popularized the body horror film genre um yay <laughs> so uh creeped out creeped out creeped out <laughs> this I is mean, the part of the audio where leo throws in some cool effects to make it sound more exciting than how it really is <laughs> i mean all he has to do is just throw in like rick saying this is the cronenberg verse <laughs> all, all, all that leo really has to do is just breathe on the keyboard that he's editing from and it just makes magic because i swear that that man is a gift from like the, the outer dimensional god <laughs> Just have Leo speaking to a mic that's reverbing long live the new flesh. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tempt him, he might do it. <laughs> he will. <laughs> yeah, so getting back to Mr. Cronenberg get him, here. Getting he back was, to it, yes, yes. He was born on March 15th, 1943 in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which I think is really funny. I never realized he was a Canadian, and I feel like I should have known that. Um, but his parents are Esther, uh, a musician, and Milton Cronenberg. He was a writer and editor. And he actually, cool thing about Milton, and like a really nice thing about like David Cronenberg's life, like even though he had he came from a family of like six, and they were a hard, hard Jewish family, um, his dad was very, very accepting of like David. Like he he liked his interests. He he was a dad that kind of like fed into his interests and stuff. And so as a young kid, he loved reading especially science fiction magazines like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction galaxy and astounding and these are where he first encountered his uh the authors that would be huge influences on his uh on his own work and his later work and these authors were ray bradbury and isaac asimov um and also while while david doesn't really like superhero movies now like he's kind of de- got on he's definitely thrown some shade at the mcu and the dceu and stuff like yeah that. he's he, he's had some words mm-hmm. he actually loved comics as a kid and his favorite superhero is shazam and believes that shazam doesn't get enough recognition <laughs> so i think that was kind of cool props to him um, mm-hmm. and then 
And also at this time, he actually started reading horror comic books. Um, and they were published by EC Comics, and he, he went on record saying that these comics were scary and bizarre and violent and nasty. These were the ones your mother don't want you to have. Yeah. <laughs> so. the, the, the notoriety of EC Comics is like, the, just how many filmmakers from Cronenberg's era are inspired by those comics is nuts. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what's also really crazy is he, uh, and so some of his early film, uh, he, so he loved science fiction, obviously. I mean, if you couldn't tell, but he loves science fiction. And so some of his favorite movies that were influences on him were War of the Worlds, Freaks, Duel, and Creature from Black, Black Lagoon. But, but, do you guys want to know the two biggest influences on his horror mind? What? Yes. Dumbo and Bambi. Oh my god. Bambi. Bambi Bambi makes sense. What's Dumbo doing there? <laughs> the pink <laughs> elephants. Ooh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and the fire and this the that dude did you, if you didn't cry when fucking Dumbo tried to hug it was got hugged from his mom's trunk after they threw her in that thing, you're oh. not a man. No, you're no. Not human. Oh yeah, no, you're a monster if you if you're you're a Cronenberg ass monster if you don't cry at that. But yeah. also like and, these the, the, the the, like the the sorrow you feel watching Dumbo being made up in that clown makeup and and yeah. having to be embarrassed by these fucking clowns like yeah oh man God. like this fear man so baby um, mine yep <laughs> so <laughs> so he claims that these are terrifying and that Bambi was the first important film he ever saw and it was especially Bambi's mother death scene and so like he loved. This movie was so important to him. He even wanted to uh, wanted to show Bambi in a personal museum about his own influences, like <laughs> a Cronenberg museum with just Bambi on repeat in one of the wings. And Disney was just like, no, yep. just no. Now, now, <laughs> what I want to know in that room is, is that if the Disney executive said, no, no, I saw Videodrome. I know where they're going to put the tape now. No, 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 no. <laughs> Probably. That's how I feel. <laughs> so wait, who who's the church? Corroded who? Oh god, oh god, oh god, oh god. Look guys, wait, wait, it's, it has an extra eye. We don't have to worry about offending him. It's not like we're gonna technically own part of his library in the next forty years. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Fuck. The fly is a Disney movie now. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> Holy shit, Jeff Goldblum's a Disney princess. It's, it's, it's the Cinderella story we always wanted. That's why he got that show on Disney+. Plus. They saw the fly and they said, we want you, but not doing that. Yeah. Just don't be Brundlefly. They saw him in his glorious golden chest in Jurassic Park, and they're like, damn it, we missed the money on this one. Yeah. Let's get, let's get the other one. The one where he has, like, tumors on his chest? Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is what the this is what the Fox acquisition was all about. It wasn't about the X Men. It was about the Fly. <laughs> Gold is in his name. We have to let him bloom. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, clapping, clapping over Zoom. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Uh, I'll be here all week. I'll be here all. Week because I'm in charge of this recording and can't exit. <laughs> yeah. So, moving on. <laughs> can't even got through first page. Um, Cronen- oh, sorry, so, sorry. No, sorry. you're good. It's just great. This is great. All right. So, um, so Cronenberg, he always, he en- always loved writing. 
and he loved writing science fiction. And what's really funny is he actually never he never wanted to do movies. He originally thought he was always going to be a novelist. And so um when to go uh and so like along with literature uh sorry he always thought he was gonna be a novelist and stuff and but he also had like little he loved science fiction so he of course had weird interests and so like he loved science too and he liked botany and lepidopetrology he loved moths the study of moths (laughs) and so i think that's just really cool with those two things because you can see these kind of like influences in his later work mm-hmm. um so I bet just, he fucking loves those moth memes oh i bet <laughs> the lamp, <laughs> Give me the lamp! <laughs> so um but yeah so all of this and he was always a very smart man and all of this got him uh he it, it all got him into the university of toronto in 1963 and he went there as a science major but uh he then switched to english and literature later that year um uh, there we go. Um, and so, like I said earlier, he originally wasn't going to be a novelist or a director. He kind of just wanted to be a novelist and everything. But he actually, uh, what started v- to- uh, getting him, that ah, started steering him towards uh, filmmaking was actually one of one film that he was super obsessed with was 1966's uh, Winter Kept Us Warm by David Sector, who is a, a close friend of David Cronenberg. And also his love for the New York underground uh, film scene, like Andy Warhol. Yeah, he. Um, can I? I I'll tell you something yes. about that because um, there's an interview on the Scanners Criterion um, from an archive, and he said the one of the reasons that that film inspired him was because he was just like, I didn't realize you could make a movie with people that weren't just your friends, which is such mm-hmm. a weird concept today because now that's literally how you believe you can become a filmmaker which is a great thought but at the time he doesn't even know that that's possible (laughs) yeah (laughs) so yeah no so there we go and so uh after learning that he's he and learning what you said zach and everything and after his obsession with uh all these like underground art house uh movies he started diving head first into learning how to make movies like he, he he loved the technical side David Cronenberg loves technology. Like he loves the advances of technology and the evolution of it. And like so much so that now, like to this day, he's actually a huge surprise. It shouldn't be surprising, but he's a huge proponent in streaming. Like he thinks that streaming is the future, not no more with like the big movies and stuff like that. So like, like we said earlier about the, you know, arguing about the evolution of movies and stuff, he's actually for streaming services. (laughs) <laughs> which so which I, I mean which is which means he's on the forefront and he's understanding mm-hmm. the evolution not on not too dissimilarly from the way his movies deal with the evolution of some forms of the body it, mm-hmm. it, like he and, is concerned with the way we grow and evolve whether it's you know as a society or within our or within the art forms that we possess which is a wonderful thing to think about in a lot of respects yeah oh yeah it's great and so and so coming back to uh, his past, so he would go. Uh, so at this point, after like really like diving into this, he start. He ended up making two 16 millimeter films at this time, and would go on to start the Toronto Film Co-op with uh, with Ian Ewing and Ivan Reitman. Um, these three guys would just like did a little film co-op and everything. And uh, because of this, it like uh, it just like kept pushing him towards like wanting to do more and more with his films. 
And so he, and then in 1967, he would go on to graduate from the University of Toronto at the top of his class. Like I said, Cronenberg's a smart man. Um, and so at this point, he would, oh, so we're going to learn some, a little bit about Canadian history here for a second. So he was actually, he mostly made independent films and art house films at this point. And then he finally wrote one of his, uh, one of his first like big movies, Shivers. And so to get this movie off the ground, he had to go through hoops and it's really fucking funny. <laughs> so he had to go through a Montreal TV company called Cinepix. And because at this point, Canada didn't distribute its own movies. They didn't have production companies and stuff outside of movies that were just documentaries. Like it was the most Canadian thing ever to hear that they just released like environment documentaries about the woods and the animal life and shit. And they never really made big movies at this time. You mean they can and be so, narrative? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so oh, wow. And, and so uh Mr. Cronenberg, he had to go he uh pitched his movie to this TV company called Cinepix. And so What's special about Cinepix is they were different from all the other Canadian film stuff because they did softcore porn and political films against English Canada because this was in Montreal who hate, who only speak French, actually their own version of French. It's Quebec, Quebec French, something like that. It's like Quebec French and it's like its own version of French and stuff and they hate the rest of Canada. So (laughs) yeah, so he went to them and they were interested in it and they're like oh yeah fuck yeah because they wanted a film that they could show in america because they were starting to want to branch out and so he brought them shivers they liked it and they took and so to make a movie in canada at this time you would have to actually take it to the the canadian government and a special wing i can't remember what the the thing was called uh, but they had to take it to there and the canadian government literally went no <laughs> they were horrified by his script the parliament the par- also the parliament of canada and yeah the, I, I i i'm not gonna say i'd understand <laughs> but i see but, it but it but it is kind of like something abrasive for a for if you're if, mm-hmm. if you're only known for making nature documentaries to see shivers is kind of just like a big step forward <laughs> yep and so they're like no and so and then also and so Cinepix was like, I mean, we'll keep it, but we don't know if you uh, we don't want you to direct it. And Cronenberg was like, well, if you want, if it's about my experience, I'll direct a porn for you guys. <laughs> like do one of your porns. And they're like, no. <laughs> and so <laughs> we've seen what you do with flesh. <laughs> and so and so uh, Cronenberg at this point, he's like, well, what do I do? I want to get my movie made. So I'm going to travel to L.A. for the first time in my life. And he went there with Norman Snyder to look for financial bac- backing. And everybody was interested in this movie. He took it to everything and everyone was interested in making his movie. And so he flies back to Toronto and before he moves to LA, the Canadian government folded and finally just said, fine, we'll take a chance, make your movie. And it costed them $185,000 like to make. And the movie, sorry, all right, say, hold on. And the movie makes $5 million in profit. <laughs> like he made a huge profit from it. Sorry, go ahead. No, it's okay. It's just like this whole thing sounds like 
some weird like rom comedy. I swear to God, because it's just like it's just Canada like, was like, no, like, we don't want it. He's like, well, yeah, Canada's like America. Canada's like. like no Canada's way. like the girlfriend who's just like, is like, all you do is want to make these weird movies all the time. Like you don't even it's like you don't even care about my nature documentaries. <laughs> and like Cronenberg's <laughs> like it's like, babe, I do care, but why don't you care about my artistic in Denver? And just like here comes like the this film company who's just like, hey Dave, we're not like the other film companies. We make porn. But we also <laughs> wait. You're into that? Oh no, you're way too freaky for me. And then like Dave's just like, it was like, how could I be so wrong? I, you know, like at the low point of the movie of the rom com, and then like here comes his friend. He's like, hey, maybe you know what? They were wrong, and we were right. Let's go. Let's go meet your girl of your dreams that you've been sending messages to on online, so that way you could finally be in love. And then they go to L.A. and like L.A. is a girl and. LA is just like, oh my god, you're so brilliant and fantastic, and oh! and then, like, he comes back like a newfound confidence, just like, hey, Canada, guess what? LA loves my movie. They want to do it, and like, Canada's like, fine, I guess, if you really want this movie to be made. <laughs> I, I but appreci- you're just gonna embarrass yourself, See- and then fucking five million, and it, like, Canada's just like, Oh, David, I mean, it's so, you know, I loved your movie. And, like, he just has his arm around L.A. And it's just like, sorry, babe, you lost your chance. I mean, obviously not as dude up like that. I don't want to do disservice to the man himself. It, but that's, it, is, it, saying, is very, it is very David Cronenberg of you, or even David Lynch to an extent, for you to uh, equate the film production process between L.A. and the Canadian Film Commission or whatever the commission is that's funding these films. In the form of a rom-com. And I really appreciate that. See, I was like, because like I was seeing more of like Canada being like, no, we don't want to do your movie. And Cronenberg's like, well, LA does. And they're like, I, okay, fine. Exactly. That's what I find. It's a it's bargaining Canada. ship. <laughs> Canada, Canada's all like, what does LA have that I don't? And they're like, he's like, interest? <laughs> Interest, resources, the best but, makeup and visual effects artists in film today. Mm-hmm. So look, so I, I, look, I'm gonna anyways. go where the sun is hot. <laughs> yeah. So so afterwards, after Canada folded, Cronenberg uh, decided to stay in Toronto, and he never moved to to L.A. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. uh, to, and so then, obviously, Shivers went off to make five million dollars, and. Uh, Again, in the same uh, interview that I talked about earlier, Cronenberg uh, also said that was the biggest commercial hit for Cinepix for years. Like, they never topped it <laughs> for a long fucking time. And same with the Canadian government for a hot while. Like, that was the biggest moneymaker for a minute. And so after the success of that, the Canadian government was like, I, all right, fine. Here's just money. Do you, boo-boo. Just do... <laughs> And so he went on to release Rabid in 1977 and then followed by The Brood and Scanners. Um, So The Brood, that's okay. So Cronenberg truly believes, or at least I don't know if he's trolling people when he says it, but he he believes his movies are comedies. Uh, Okay, I could I could I could buy that. I can buy yep. that. And, and but and he says the only one that he doesn't is the brood because there was so much anger and so much just emotion behind it because the main ca- the main monster of the brood is based off of his ex-wife. 
<laughs> so, the movie's basically a big middle finger to his ex-wife. I mean, I mean, look, we didn't didn't Spielberg get a lot of his post-divorce aggression out with Temple of Doom? I mean, like we, we all we all have the one movie. <laughs> yeah, and then and so the and then also I brought up Scanners, and so 1981 Scanners would actually go on to be Cronenberg's first big commercial hit of a movie. And it's what really brought him to the limelight mm-hmm. because to even the surprise of himself, it was the number one movie in North America for a hot minute. Like it was everywhere. And he was just like, what? <laughs> like, I feel like Cronenberg's super humble with his stuff. Cause he's just like, he, cause he was just like, that's not my movie. I, you don't No, It's not. <laughs> and it's just like, like yeah, all you, I want to do is write a right novel. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's just cool just because, like, I feel like skin. Yeah, no, it's like I just want to make my books. <laughs> <laughs> this, this was all a funding scheme for novels, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I just this... think it's. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, 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 no. You're fine. Go ahead. I, was, I just think it's great because uh, so Jeremy Irons, you know, he stars in Scanners, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Irons is in it, and it's just really funny because Jeremy Irons is this. He's like Cronenberg's. He's he's to Cronenberg like I feel like Johnny Depp is to Tim Burton where it's just like hey I need someone and Jeremy Irons is just like fucking I got you boo <laughs> like because it's not the first time he's gonna come up and he really saves Cronenberg's booty for another big film of his um so this was uh so Scanners was really huge and it's and and from now on like I feel like it's become one of the cult hits a cult classic for everybody oh yeah and I'm and I'm gonna and I just I want to talk about. The greatest scene in that movie that, of course, everybody just you ha- you have to talk about it. It's the most Fucking, infamous. Yeah, and so like, cause I never knew about this movie until I saw like a little clip of it of this scene. It's the one where and Cronenberg loves special effects. He loves it, and I think that and it comes through uh, from talks he has of, like we said earlier, like I said earlier, he loves the technical side of things and he's very forward thinking with the stuff, and so just in case any of you listeners have never seen this movie this all happens with practical effects no cg mm-hmm, so one mm-hmm. of the most famous moments is where scanners are uh in the movie are telepaths and so there's uh the scene where one telepath is saying he's really good and he like kind of ends but there's this evil one and they have this telepathic battle and it's supposed to just be for show like it was supposed to, like in the context of the movie it was just supposed to be like showing what they can do and jeremy iron's character decides to just go ham on this other telepath and in the scene in the movie this telepath heads just fucking explodes and how they filmed this it is just so gory and it's so beautiful yeah, and, and real quick we also talked about this scene too on our practical yeah. effects episode yeah and and how they brought it to life but anyways continue mm-hmm. but yeah and so how what they did is they like they basically got a balloon right was it blue it's, or it's it was like a it was, there was a balloon Prosthetic. and they stuffed it with uh stringed intestines chewed up yeah. meat Anything that they could get their hands on that would mm-hmm. look disgusting as shit, and yep. you had, you, you <laughs> had, uh, you had the, that effects team, but you also had a, a gentleman that I wanted to bring up super bad because out of anybody that's mentioned in those bonus features on the Criterion, he is the best interview. It's Gary Zeller. This is the mm-hmm. pyro tech and all around jack of all trades, and he's the reason we have the creative solution they had for blowing this head up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like what i think is great is they were just like all right so how are we gonna make it blow up and he was just like i'm gonna stand 
five feet behind it with a shotgun. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going <laughs> to fucking shoot it. And, <laughs> and they're like, done. <laughs> and created one of the greatest scenes in horror history. It, so You have Gary Zeller behind there operating the shotgun. And he literally tells everybody, all right, step back. Step fucking back. <laughs> Get back. I got this. <laughs> when you listen to him on the interview in the Criterion, he literally is just the calmest person. And, and everybody else who's interviewed talking about him going like, he's crazy, man. He's fucking crazy. <laughs> he's too intense he's for his own good. The quiet, the quiet ones always are. Yeah, he's just very, he's very like technically like he's one of those like special effects guys who's like really just technically like he he speaks about it as if though it's like literally just like it's it's something you should know waking up in the morning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's all so yeah, simple, sir. Sure. But yeah, like I, that. I'm willing to bet that he did it and he was like, I have to play it cool from now on for the rest of my fucking life. <laughs> <laughs> And I cannot take the enjoyment in this when I, as I had when I pulled that trigger. He's like, you got, you got to think that it through his head when he, right before he pulled the trigger, it was don't smile, don't smile, don't smile. <laughs> I smiled. It's, it's, it's hide the bolts. It's literally the, the It's literally that innovation that you have with a minimal budget and having to get creative because that when they exploded the the head, it wasn't in the same set that they were shooting the majority of that scene on. They had to build it on an outside source and make it up Mm -hmm. to look like the back of that college lecture room that they were filming in. And uh, you you were bringing up makeup. Like, you've got Dick Smith on this fucking movie. Like, they brought Mm -hmm. in a team, and you have Dick the Exorcist Smith on here, man. Like... Cronenberg went all out to make Scanners what it was. Like it's oh yeah, it's an it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so and yeah, and so with the success of Scanners and everything, like like you said, he started getting offers for some uh, some pretty interesting movies because of this. So he was offered to direct Top Gun, <laughs> which I think would be great. But what, does Don Cruz meld with the plane? <laughs> I, I, I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, See, come on. When Go- Goose's death scene was going to be completely different, instead he was going to get launched up into the plane and then just like engulf it and turn into the jet. So, oh. <laughs> he, just, yeah. he just becomes a transformer. It's, exactly. it's, it's like um, David Lynch's Return of the Jedi. We missed out on so fucking much. Oh, oh wait. <laughs> Speaking up. So, yeah. getting there. So, he was also asked to direct Flashdance. For all you film buffs, I didn't. I and but the funny thing about that is he actually. So the direct the the original person for Flashdance like called him up was like you're the perfect person to do this. And when he and the he's like just kind of like told her on the phone. He's like, if you let me direct this movie, I'm going to destroy it. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> he's like, not even willingly. I will. I'll be trying to make the best movie I can, but it's just going to be trash. Don't, not me. Look, it's so obviously they. Pam, so it's not a threat. It's a promise. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so obviously they passed him over, and it became a pretty popular movie. And then he, and then he got it. So in this same interview with Mick Garris that I t- talked about, he talks about how he got a call one day, and he was offered to direct Return of the Jedi. <laughs> At that point, it was actually called Revenge of the Jedi, but he was asked to direct that, and he and his response was, I normally don't do work on other people's stuff. And they hung up and never called back. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that was his whole thing with Star Wars. <laughs> he he should have just George. He should have just told George, "I will annihilate this movie. <laughs> I will fucking shit all over it and wrap it in a bow for you." The Ewoks will eat Harrison Ford. Like that's just that's that's a guarantee on my front. And what's more, I'll make sure that the Ewoks turn inside out before they do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry if I ruined the Ewoks for anybody. <laughs> Actually, I think you made him better. Side note: side Star Wars nerd lore note: Ewoks are very malicious and very uh, dangerous. And matter of fact, that scene in uh, Return of not Return of the Jedi. Uh, oh, right, no, yeah, it is Return, yeah, Return of the Jedi. Of the Jedi. Uh, where they're being tied up, Han and uh, uh, C three PO or, or Han they Luke, gonna, and uh, they were going to eat them. They were going to eat yep. them because they they worship a god, and it was there was actually going to be a sacrifice, and it's actually far more bloody. And uh, it, it was that whole scene, that whole war scene, was actually supposed to be a lot bloodier uh, mm -hmm. than they than in the final production. Like it, it's it's pretty. It, like to give it a little more nod sorry because we do got to bring it back to Cronenberg yeah <laughs> um in in one of the books for Star Wars like there was a stormtrooper that was uh like in the like in the narrative like kind of like interviewed or asked like how was the war and like he even he said like the stormtrooper said that uh fighting the Ewoks you know they're they're deceptive because they look harmless but it was the most terrifying war he was ever involved in. I want because <laughs> I want apocalypse. What they don't show. I want apocalypse now with Ewoks and the stormtroopers <laughs> going down the river now. Well, because what they don't show in the movies is that the Ewoks use a lot of chemical warfare and blood weaponry. Like they show the blood weapons, but like because all the stormtroopers are wearing helmets, you don't see them suffocating and their eyes like falling out of their skull and, <laughs> and then bleeding out of the orifices because it's all happening underneath that uh, beautiful white helmet. Use your imagination, children. That's what I have to do. It's all so, it's all in your head. <laughs> so you know, if anything, Quarterberg could have brought those scenes to life. <laughs> you know. You know, like whoever like was rating, re creating that entire backstory about the like about the Ewoks, and then watching it on the uh, on the big screen was just sitting there like, good, <laughs> <laughs> like good. they will never know. <laughs> like, Let the deception right. flow through you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyways, back to the Berg. So, anyway, so back to the Berg. Um, so during this <laughs> during this time where he's getting offered like all these like big name movies and stuff like that, he kept he. A lot of good, good amount of time he kind of just turned him down. It wasn't his thing, but he was because he was making his cult hits. He made it his one of his big cult hits, 1983's Videodrome, um, with starring James Woods. And also because of that, and like he he got a little call from a company called Paramount, and they're like, "Hey, can you do Dead Zone?" And so he did 1983's Dead Zone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like he's just like doing all these little things. He wanted to stick kind of more towards his like horror aspects, like what it really looks like at this time. He didn't really want to branch out a whole lot. Like he did, but not as much. Props to and so, props like, to Paramount, by the way, for literally like watching something like Videodrome or within that back catalog and just being like, you know what? We need you for the dead zone. Like this is the only you're the only option for us. Like because mm -hmm. yeah, and he, it was great. It's, <laughs> like, it's fantastic. The dead zone's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of like and it's, here's like where he's starting to really like build the the body horror image. You know, with Videodrome, obviously, with the fucking like 
gun in the his hand literal hand handgun yeah, yeah <laughs> and that, then the tape he has to inject the tape into his chest and shit like that yeah the chest video, the infamous chest vagina trick. yeah that's mm -hmm. i rewatched that today in prep for this and it, it, there's it, there's a lot of imagery that like you had mentioned with the gun that that ends up inspiring somebody to make something like tetsuo the iron man later on in 89 but the the amount of audacity of that film from its themes into ju <laughs> into just the horror realm like there's some shit in there that i think extends beyond like anything we even see down the line especially with one film we'll talk about cuz like that film oh, yeah. literally just does not give a shit about what it's doing to you <laughs> and it's <laughs> yeah. and it's i mean it's a deep film but at the same time it's, it is just like you are you are unable to look away from the the shock of what's going on and i think cronenberg's big thing is that he does he examines human behavior and he asks you to sh sit patiently with it no matter how uncomfortable it is and depending on your comfort zone you may not want to watch these movies but if you mm -hmm. sit with it you will be treated to an experience that you don't get from any other director courtesy of that that explores behavior that way <laughs> oh yeah no and like and one of the things like for cronenberg's stuff is that he always says like one of his most famous quotes is like he all about all of his movies is that you need to watch it from the perspective of the disease mm -hmm. like all of his movies are like that and especially videodrome because the perspective of the disease in that is the consumption of mass media yep you know just the just the fucking just eating it and eating mm -hmm. it and eating it and like and obviously it turned him into a, a giant vagina chest weird gun shooting monster <laughs> that, that is probably the most politically safe way you could describe it <laughs> he got a lot of that i i looked into it afterward he got a lot of that inspiration from like the 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 thematics of it from a professor that he had um named marshall McLuhan. and oh cool i didn't know that. yeah and the idea of the medium is the message and he's exploring the medium and not the content itself and when you watch videodrome you are literally watching a uh the 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 medium of television and audiovisual entertainment being put under the microscope by cronenberg and the literal translation that comes to is some of the craziest batshit special effects i've ever seen in a movie like when i first saw the movie years ago or even to this day you're watching a television like bubble out or you're watching you know the the the, the chest thingamabobber and it just it 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 unnerves you because it, the themes that he talks about in that movie are more relevant today than they were when that movie came out in '83. Like mm -hmm. there there are lines in that movie that literally directly reference what we have now in the form of social media. It's it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it is. And uh, yeah, for real. Sorry, <laughs> that was good. That was really good. <laughs> like, just I was just like, I had to get this I thought out of my head. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I had no addition to that. That was a perfect thought. <laughs> and so, and then uh, one fun fact about Dead Zone Two, you know, besides the fact that Paramount came and asked him, it's also one of one of his first movies that he didn't write that he directs. Mm -hmm. Because for a while, like for a long time, and for the most part of his career, he does not like directing other people's written work. And so, uh, and that like was really adamant for him, especially when he made all of his like uh, indie movies. And it wasn't until 
1986, where Cronenberg would end up making probably his most inf- his most famous movie, 1986's The Fly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also the first movie he did where that was a re- a remake. And like, cause he like he said told Disney or not Disney because it wasn't Disney at the time. Uh, Lucas Films, I don't like doing other people's work, but with The Fly, it was different. Like, and they didn't even really need to convince him too much to do it. Like, they 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 showed him the like the rework, how it's different from the original Fly and everything, what they want to do it. And Cronenberg looked at this script, and he goes, "So I'm gonna throw away the first 17 pages and rewrite it. Is that cool?" And they're like, "Son of a bitch, I'm in." <laughs> like, it, it, it's kind of. Cra- have you guys watched the original The Fly from '58? Not, no, it's, it doesn't no. matter if you have it. It really doesn't matter. Although it's still it's still a fun it's still a fun watch. But looking at what that film does compared to what Cronenberg does, it's amazing how faithful he is to the concept from that first film. Like there's mm-hmm. so much that does translate over, but what he does with that idea is shocking like (laughs) Mm -hmm. well it's just cool because like it it, yeah he wanted to stay more towards the original but he also wanted to put in his own spin on it and everything as you would and i just think it's cool that like that's what he did he's like he rewrote the script to be a little bit more closely to the old one and this and the studio was like all right cool here's more money also to like to go in with it and so and another okay so it's a really cool uh i'm gonna throw out some fun facts about the fly just in case not a whole lot of people know about it so one is uh, one fun fact about david cronenberg in general he has never worked with a major through a major studio he's never released a movie through a major studio like he's never done it through universal through paramount every single including the fly has gone through a smaller uh, third-party production company before going through the major ones, and The Fly went through Mel Brooks's production company. Mm-hmm. Brooks yep, Films. So, this, yep, this, Brooks Films. This fucking, <laughs> this fucking company has made so much stuff you don't un- you don't realize until after the fact because <laughs> mm-hmm. like you know you think Mel Brooks he's just a funny go like go forward guy like just a really funny dude and stuff like that he's like nah i look i love you cronenberg yep they were good friends he he likes (laughs) he likes cronenberg he likes he got lynched to do elephant man like that and mm -hmm. and that was one of the reasons why he's not credited in the films is mel made that decision himself because he said i can't risk these movies failing with people thinking if my name's attached that it's a comedy like it's best to keep my name out of the process and yeah. and they made dramas too beyond just these two ethereal horror esque films. But oh yeah, it's but like the, the fly like is a financial risk in certain respects because you're remaking a sci fi film from the fifties. But if the thing proved anything is is that you can literally take these concepts wherever you want to go. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and this is the a cream of the crop example of that. <laughs> yep. And so I just thought that was cool. And like, and that's, and also when I was reading up on this, I thought it was just cool to hear the, how like Cronenberg never went through a major studio. Like mm-hmm. he was, it was so like, uh, what we talked about with James whale, uh, he would, he literally stuck a finger up to like Paramount and went and just be just cause he could. 
And then just to hear Cronenberg literally doing the same thing to every single motion picture studio, just the, you know, he's just looks at those devils and just says, fuck off. Like he talked to my demon. <laughs> like, you, you could talk to my third so party great. person, whoever he might be this time. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> you talk to my so, new girlfriend. <laughs> and so, yep. <laughs> yeah, it's like my new girlfriend. <laughs> I, I can't help but feel now that like, now that he's like, kind of like, Said that uh, streaming services are the way of the future with Paramount coming out uh, with their uh, now having their own streaming site. <laughs> yeah. That Cronenberg's like, streaming is the way of the future, except Paramount. Except Ex- you, except Paramount. Except you, Paramount. <laughs> You're the worst. Just see him outside the Paramount lot shaking his fucking fist. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't no goddamn Netflix. And then his fist turns yeah. into a fly feeler and. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh shit, this is about to get real. Oh my god. Oh my god, Cronenfly. Wee! <laughs> Cronenfly, I choose you. You use Gust. Yeah. Cronenfly is the scariest of the Pokemon. <laughs> so, gives you an art lecture as he's attacking you in battle. <laughs> ah, bye, my novels. I mean, buzz, not now. <laughs> Same diff <laughs> at that point. It's a Cronenberg monster. For Cronenberg, it would make sense. Yeah, for Cronenberg monster, it would make sense for fly, like a bug-like creature thing to, to sound like a bird. Cronenberg monsters. They'll sound however the fuck they want. <laughs> we don't. Cronenberg monsters. We don't know either. <laughs> Audio yeah. origin? Unknown. <laughs> So bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> so, bring it back. Bring it back to talk about the the actual fly instead of this fly we made. Um so he uh another fun fact about so Cronenberg he he so with uh sorry I have to look up his name real fast. Um okay. so he teamed up so in all of his movies except for Dead uh the Dead Zone, he had uh the he teamed with Howard Shore to do all of his music and all of his movies. And he's a really good friend of David's and uh, Mr. Cronenberg's. And so he talked to him and he was like, Hey, we need to make the music of this movie. It's own character. It needs to be over the top. Like every scene with music needs to have a point. So like, you know, like the, the scene where, uh, Jeff Goldblum's character is walking to the bar before he snaps that dude's, uh, uh, forearm in half. Um, Cronenberg said in a in an interview, he's like the music there. It needs to show that he is on a mission, like he's on a goddamn mission to do this. Like it's not just a oh, I'm going to a bar. It's like I'm gonna fuck someone up in that bar. And so it's it's like um, an opera to the point where Howard Shore yes. actually made this a fucking opera. <laughs> yes. So I was actually gonna say that he wanted his this movie to be like an opera, and. In 2018, <laughs> The Fly became an actual onstage opera. Oh, God. <laughs> with that, the music. Isn't that great? It's, <laughs> it's fucking great. Like, fucking, it was done with Cronenberg uh, di- directed. It was his first non-film directing spot. And uh, Howard Shore did the music for it also. So it was just really cool. And funny enough, the pop uh, with the popular of The Fly opera, uh, someone asked if he would do a Dead Ringers opera next afterwards because that was the next like big mu- music one, and he was like, "If you could find me the exact same people, that's it. That's the only way I'll do it." <laughs> so, yeah, 
<laughs> so you after, get Jeremy uh, Irons to start singing libretto, and then <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine though what like scanners the opera would be like? Just think oh about my it. Like God. it would, they would have to do a whole set piece in itself just for the head exploding scene. The head inst just, like, instead of blood and guts, it's just streamers. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> God, I mean, like, and but instead, and instead of a shotgun over there, they have to actually use like a little uh, blow gut, blow dart gun with a b balloon. No, they it, <laughs> like they just have like this, this like a giant like uh heads, like this giant like van size replica of the head. I come out with like a giant bust size shotgun, and they're just like. Like, it takes, like, six hours to prep this one little set piece. Cronenberg then, comes out to the audience and says, I know this is taking long, but be patient. <laughs> also, the first six rows, you're going to want to get out of the way. <laughs> it's worse than a Gallagher would, show, trust yeah. me. I'd recommend, I'd recommend moving to the aisles for this scene, and then you'll be good. <laughs> did you oh, bring that. your towel? The t pamphlet did say bring a towel. Oh no, the, the, the aisles won't be enough. They they would have to literally leave the theater itself. It's it's gonna fill the whole theater. Like like the effect is just gonna like flood. Like it's gonna be basically the scene from the eighties, the Blob, where he like goes into the theater, except it's just like blood and guts from this like paper mache head. There is a risk of drowning, so I trust you all signed your liability forms. <laughs> If somebody's like, there's liability forms, then... <laughs> <Yeah>. Wait, what? <laughs> told you to not just toss that paper in the trash, guys. Come on. I thought we were adults told... here. <laughs> it's said to keep your mouth closed during the shotgun scene. Did you not read the rules and regulations of <laughs> Scanners the Opera? <laughs> As it's like Cronenberg throws down like, like a rolled up piece of paper and it's just like, I can't work like this. Fucking clean yourself up. Howard, why'd you drag me into the opera again? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, going, yeah, bring it back to it. Going back, back in time, back to the '80s. Um, so after the the success of the flight and everything, and the hit of that, he then Cronenberg uh, finally was able to release a movie he's been working on for ten years, 1988's Dead Ringers. So there, one of the two reasons. There's two big reasons why it took so long for this movie to come out, and it's just some fun facts about it is that um it took 10 years because of the this technology that was of the time like being able to do the twins because it's about two tw uh gyne uh two twins who are gyneco gynecologists and just the the way they to do the facial recognition and to actually make the twins happen with using one actor uh they just didn't have the technology at the time until the 80s until 88 and also the biggest one one of the biggest reasons too is he couldn't find a lead actor at the time. So in the same interview that I've uh, that I talked about, it's a really good interview. I like I highly recommend it uh, for any Cronenberg fans. Um, uh, in the same interview with Mick Garris, Cronenberg talks about how uh, he asked twenty of the top American and Canadian actors, basically twenty of the best North American actors of the time, because he was thinking like you know it it would be a huge opportunity to play twins in a movie it's a hard thing to do and if you could pull it off like it it just make your resume just sparkle um, and so but every single one of them passed on the on the opportunity because of either playing twins was too hard or they couldn't get over the fact that it was a gynecologist like yeah they're like can he can he be a lawyer and cronenberg is like can you go to hell 
<laughs> Can you go fuck yourself? Yeah. And so then he just goes, you know what? I'm gonna call my friend Jeremy Irons. Like he's you know that Australian guy who did who did scanners, and he's like, hey Jeremy, would you like to would you like to play twins who are who are gynecologists in this new movie? And Jeremy Irons is like, fucking, I'm on the plane, next plane out, man. Like I got you, boo. He's, he's already knocking on Cronenberg's door. When do we start filming? Yep. <laughs> Basically. How did you get and, here uh, so quick? I was outside the door this entire time, David. You yeah, didn't, I was waiting. You didn't hear me breathing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a cool thing like and i gotta give jeremy irons props for this movie like he did awesome in this film and also during the entire film uh the entire time they were filming the movie he would fly back and forth between uh Eng- i think it's england where they filmed it and um and uh australia so like jeremy irons is fucking a trooper during this movie and he did fantastic in it so i highly recommend it just for jeremy irons's work um and I just you, love Jeremy Irons. You could say I mean, his uh, to talk about him. You you could say his uh, his passion for acting is ironclad. That's <laughs> <laughs> someone said it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think Matt wins the podcast. I have a good pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you could, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could get a good and pun so, out of there. Yep. And so at this time, after the eighties and the the mid nineties. Early not, the 90s is kind of when Cronenberg uh, started moving away from the body horror aspects and everything. He still don't get me wrong, he still has his movies, but he's starting to like branch out more. And so, but uh, he tackled one of his, I, I would say probably one of his favorite movies. I think from what I've uh, what I've read and everything, it's just like a personal favorite of his. Um, in 1991, Cronenberg t- would take on a quote unquote impossible task. And he actually would end up making the 1991 movie Naked Lunch. Um, it's an adaptation of one of his biggest influences, William S. Burroughs' uh, novel, a novel by William S. Burroughs. Um, and so the novel is considered unfilmable, and Cronenberg actually acknowledged it and said it, it said that a direct adaptation of the movie would cost $400 million and would pr- more than likely get banned in every single country. That sounds about so, right. <laughs> yeah. So he was like, so I'm going to change it. Um, and he made it and he made it a good movie. Like, yeah, there's some like, of course, criti- critics about it, but he filmed the unfilmable movie mm-hmm. and he made, and even with the changes and everything, he also talked about how he felt a connection uh, to the main, to one of the characters and a huge connecting w- connection to Burroughs himself. Like he literally felt like he became one with them. And in an interview, he just joked uh, when they talked about the movie and if the uh, if uh, William S. Burroughs will ever make a se- uh, sequel to the book and if Cronenberg would make the movie for the sequel, Cronenberg was just like, I mean, if he doesn't want to, I'll write the book for him. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, I know him so well. <laughs> so, I am Burroughs. Yeah, he's like, so Cronenberg Cronenberged himself into William S. Burroughs. That's, a, that's the kind of assimilation that's only worthy of a Cronenberg story is Cronenberg literally assimilating himself into William S. Burroughs. <laughs> yeah. And so, and the reason, like, even though, and so, like I said earlier, he was starting to veer away from the body horror around this time, but he did come out with a film that you, I know you guys were talking about before we started recording, and I sadly didn't get a whole lot of stuff on, so you guys are going to talk about it more. 
but 1996's Crash. Yeah. So yes, has probably become one of his like it's probably one of his more famous uh, I guess underground famous movies because I actually didn't a, hear about it until you guys. It's a controversial film, is what it is. Okay. It right. is. Yeah. There, there's more a reason why. Yeah. So there's okay. Yeah. So go ahead. Uh, so uh, just before I get uh, before I let you guys take, I'm just gonna, you guys take it away because like I said, I don't know a whole lot about this movie. Um, I'm just gonna give you guys a quick synopsis and then let you guys run away with it. <laughs> so. Um, Oh my gosh, where is the synopsis for it? Is this... Okay, it follows a film producer played by James Spader as he becomes involved with a group of... Oh yeah, this is why. Symphrophiliacs who are sexually aroused by car crashes. Alright, and so you guys take it away with how why it's important. Okay, so I, I think it's important to fully disclose this is... The, I saw this movie for the first time ever to prepare for this podcast because it is it has been on the wait until later list for a long time and i kind of understand why it, it, the, this <laughs> this movie is uh i don't want to say it's 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 it exists yes but like what some of the reading that i did on it afterwards was that like <clears throat> there's like a, there's a disconnect in the movie because it does feel like you are a dispassionate voyeur is one of the phrases that I saw. And, and I feel like that's pretty accurate because it is very moment by moment. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that was your take possibly on a map, but like, I felt like it's like, it's episodic. It's dealing with the, uh, the, again, Cronenberg looking into human behavior and the extreme extremes in which it goes. And in this one, he's kind of allowing it to unfold raw and naturally and not, letting it and he's not contriving anything it's literally like a series of events that coalesces into the theme of what he's attempting with this look at the thin line of sex and violence that he has examined in his previous work because like videodrome's full of that um mm -hmm. but like the film first of all i will say this this crash is 10 times better than 2005's crash um just 10 <laughs> times more interesting doesn't feel like it doesn't understand its themes. Um, so, and, okay, so Doug, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. I was just like, so when you guys were talking about before the, the, uh, we started recording, we were like, yeah. in the movie crash, I was like, he did crash. No. Yeah. That, that, <laughs> that goes, cause that's like, I've totally forgot. Like that. Glad you brought it I, up. I had that same confusion when I first started looking at Cronenberg's <laughs> filmography and I'm like, he didn't make crash. Paul Haggis did. And then, and then you read about it. It's like, Oh no, it's a different crash. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it is like when you watch this film, I think you're kind of watching like the, uh, like the, the Cronenberg thesis paper, um, without any of the true, like the, the, the flourishes he's known for, because there's not a ton of, um, the kind of make innovative makeup that he's known for. It's very much stemmed in reality. And consequently, it makes the movie very disturbing to watch. Um, mm -hmm. I, I mean, and you know, when it's talking about car crashes and people getting off on it, one of the most bizarre scenes I have ever seen in a movie involves Elias Coteus's character presenting to a group of similar similarly minded people a recreation of the James Dean car crash that killed James Jeez. Dean in the 50s that it was one of the most 
strange, bizarre, but like film wise and technique wise, it looks amazing. But like content and thematics, like my head was like about to explode scanner style. Like I was just like, <laughs> why? Why? And but like you know, the controversy from this film, Matt. Mm-hmm. I, I, I guess like the question is, is like, is it as warranted as it was when people were freaking about it, out about it in 96 and 97? Because it's, it's still pretty intense close to 30 years later. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't mean, know how to, yeah. No, you're okay. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I don't know how to perceive it from what we've gotten since then, because it seems like we've gotten worse, but. Like worse, like worse things thematically or constructively, but like this film is still very, it still packs its punch that it's intended to. Yeah, and and very much so. Like this is one of the few films that I kind of compare to like The Exorcist in this regard, where like it's one of those movies that throughout time, like you just said, still has its very shocking impact. And um, I mean, even The Exorcist still has those moments uh, as well. And I'm not going to go too deep in comparison because, uh, you know, it's about the controversy itself. Um, and I, I think this is like the perfect movie that is kind of like synonymous, not just because of it's a Cronenberg movie, but because if you watch any Cronenberg movie, um, you're always going to be thrown off by the apparent obvious themes of whether it's body horror themes or whether it's, you know, social commentary and how he approaches it. Um I mean, we've been talking, I'm trying not to like go everything that we talked about again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one can look at this movie and easily argue it being being a highly stylized snuff film. Um, while others could come to this movie and say that it's given the wrong message about tragedy. Um, but if you look on the other side of that dynamic, I don't think the controversy around the film is as warranted. I do think that there should be like, uh, an error caution, especially if yeah. you are somebody who has like been through a serious accident. Um, this is, this is definitely going to be a very triggering movie, mm-hmm. but if you can somehow look through all the shocking themes and scenes and, you know, if you could even somehow look past the scene where James Spader just like penetrates a gash wound on a woman's leg, um, you can, the, 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 and it does happen it's in the movie um it's it's a whole thing and like when i saw it for the first time i thought it was like having a fever dream because i was like this this isn't real and then like uh you know you go back and you're like oh my god this actually was made into a movie um but with that in mind you know one could also come back and argue that this movie talks about not just the obvious themes of people who have an erotic association with um, death and tragedy, and in this case, car crashes, but also finding solace in tragedy itself. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not uncommon for people who have PTSD to find solidarity with each other and even, in some cases, fall in love with each other because they can be that way. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm being a little like cheesy about it, uh, but legitimately, you know, there is this kind of like other message of society, population itself being obsessed with sex and violence, especially here in America. I mean, uh, we're we're the only country in the world that censors the naked body more than we do the violence that we put on TV. And it's like we have this love for violence. We want to love carnage and we want to, you know, just obsess about it and and look at it and never look away from it and i think that's what crash really symbolizes at at the you know at the most is that you know we there is 
everybody has uh, an asphyxiation obsession with violence, with tragedy, with macabre, with these taboo things that we shouldn't. Now, again, uh, you, you could take or you could take or leave my input on this, but and just look at it as just a fucked up movie where James Spader likes to like put his dick in weird holes that he really shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> I, but, I I think that's a very responsible um, uh, response to it. Like you know, like with it within the within the the discussion of like how he's treating sex and violence. I mean, like you look at Videodrome and this side by side, and the big difference is, is that in Videodrome, technically, you're given a point of view character that you are you can emotionally attach yourself to in some form or fashion. Um, not to say you can actually attach yourself to James Woods these days because he's terrible, but you uh, but um in his character in the movie you you are given much more empathy i guess or at least the the sense of relatability and in this film mm -hmm. there's a distance you are kept at a distance you are observing you are not participating and that really that's oh i'm sorry Zach. i was gonna say that's the thing that that's the thing that's different and why i think this film had such a reaction because it almost felt like it was callous of david to do it but it's in a sense the one of the reasons why it's effective is because he does keep that distance because if he gets involved the movie becomes a, a an entirely different beast <laughs> well and the thing i'm glad you're tapping on here zach and i and it's exactly what it is it's the way you're explaining it is that the viewer is kept at a distance much like as if you were watching a car crash or you were driving on the highway yeah. and you saw a car crash. I mean, uh, James Spader, his character is is supposed to be demonized. You're supposed to not really root for him. I mean, he's, he's a gross person in this movie. You know, you're supposed to have that effect from him. But the thing is, is that he's just the metaphor for all of our obsession with car, with, with either the literal car crashes we see in our day-to-day -day lives or carnage and violence and death that we want to see. I mean, legitimately, you know, listeners, how often... Do you really go out of your way to try and avoid looking at a car crash as you drive by it? Or do you still look with a small moment of intrigue to just see what you might see? To see the these boundaries that you probably shouldn't be looking at. These these themes that you shouldn't be looking at. You know, I mean, it's it's easy to demonize somebody like James Spader's character in this movie. It's It's very easy to do it. I mean, I do it. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm also somebody who, whenever I go by an actual car crash, you know, I... I get curious, you know, I mean, being horror fans, you know, we talk about, and I've even talked about my love for gore, my love for that type of stuff. And then obviously yeah, there's a difference, like in reality, I'm not going to want to see that type of stuff happen. But I mean, really, when it comes down to it, even on a primal level, don't we all just want to see some blood, guts and carnage, whether regardless of how often and how much the amount we want to see it, because that's what Cronenberg did with Crash. He, he knew that part of the human psyche. He knew that taboo part of our brains that we don't want to acknowledge that exists, but it still does. And part of the intelligence of him as a filmmaker is that he does address the issue of our fascination with violence while participating in the, um, the, the manifestation of violence in the form of his horror films in a way that doesn't seem contradictory. And I mm -hmm. think that that's, that's his brilliance as a director is, is that <coughs> he's willing to tap into... Uh, the primal, uh, the primal element of our behavior, and examine it while not judging. He's he's kind of just he's an observer. He's he's an observer, much like we as the audience are supposed to be the observer in Crash. 
he he is in a in a way he's kind of like a documentarian on our on our our thoughts and emotions and behaviors in that respect which i know sounds highfalutin but i think it is a good way to justify a, a good chunk of his early or horror work in a way that brings it to the level that it deserves to be i mean crash is something that i still need to digest because for a first time viewing it's a hell of a first time viewing to just walk in oh like, yeah it, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, it's probably good that I was older watching it because I, I was able to kind of like this, di like, dist distance myself even further than he wants me to, and try to look at every angle of the way this film is made because this film is beautifully shot from the from a cinematography standpoint. Like, it looks incredible, but the uh, the amount of distance he goes with his themes to the point of the very end of the film where you you have this very terrifying moment and the line it ends on about maybe next time darling is so haunting like this is a horror movie that is absolutely disguised as a uh an erotic drama or whatever you want oh, to call yeah. it like this erotic thriller yeah. <laughs> yeah this is a horror movie because that line and where her, his relationship with um uh deborah deborah Kara unger's character is at this point is like that's like that's the kind of weird moment that Cronenberg leaves you on of just like this is the this is the path these two are on now because of where their dispassion at the top of the movie has taken them in order to rekindle something. It's it's super strange. I don't know how to classify it because it feels like I'm not intelligent enough to like quantify it, you know, but like it's it's I think it's a movie that you should watch with caution though because this movie is not yes. This movie is uncomfortable as shit. Like it is, it is absolutely uncomfortable from frame one to frame end. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the controversy that it extended to was like this film was supposed to be released uh, before, earlier than it did, and Ted Turner actually pulled the theatrical release because he was abhorred by the violence, and he was the the primary shareholder. I think it was in Fine Line Features, which was the studio that was putting this out, and and this movie pissed off Francis Ford Coppola. Like, he refused to give out the special jury prize that the rest of the Cannes judges had formed to give Cronenberg because he was disgusted by this movie, which kind of boggles my mind in certain respects. But at the other t end, end of it, I'm like, I guess so. I mean, like, I, you're the head of the Cannes jury of that year. It's, I guess it's your right to, to not find favor in what other people are liking. But it's just super strange how this movie's release unfolded. <laughs> So with that in mind, Cody, you you essentially being uh, you know the listener at this point who has never seen about the movie, who's never seen the movie and has only heard about it, with everything that we described about it, is this is this a movie that you want to dive into? I mean, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> <laughs> if you, it I will. I will tell it's you. Not, even, like after everything, I'm like still not the worst thing I've seen. <laughs> I, I mean, like, Cody, like, do a report back, because, like, I, I think that, like, we all need to have a consensus here of, like, okay, we're all in agreement. We saw a crash. We know what we're dealing with, right? Okay, good. Meeting adjourned. I'm pretty, we, certain, I'm pretty we certain we'll just sit and, like, all three of us will get together and just be like, so that was a movie. Yeah. And then we walk away. <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, Zach, it's probably good that you're getting a plow cleanser like Space Jam too. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, the new legacy, the the the, the palate cleanser of the of the new legacy will definitely help me better put into perspective 1997's crash. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
You guys got, got what you need out yes. of it? Yes. Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. cool. All right, just making sure. I am so sorry so, that went on as long on. as it did. <laughs> oh, don't. That's why I gave you guys the field. I wanted to, I wanted to know what was up with the movie. So, <laughs> yeah. So, knowing that, now, <laughs> we can move on. And so, after... Uh, so, uh, fun thing about the movies Naked Lunch and Butterfly and Crash is that they were all three movies based off of uh, books that were highly, highly influential in Cronenberg's life. Uh, well, maybe not Crash. I can't remember. Dead, I think it was Dead Ringers. Sorry, Dead Ringers. Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, and, and Butterfly were all, like, hard, uh, big movies, uh, books that he wanted to do. And then, so, after after the late 90s, um, he did come out with a couple movies, Existence and Spider, which were, uh, they, they, those are the movies that started leaning more towards the psychological thriller. And then, funny enough, I didn't know this was a movie made by him until now, and I fucking loved this movie. And mostly because I never paid attention to directors, but what really like stamped his psychological thriller card and away from the hardcore uh, horror movies and everything was his movie 2005's A History of Violence, yeah. starring Viggo Mortensen. So I actually didn't know that was a Cronenberg movie because there was no Cronenberg-esque to it. Like, because when I saw the movie when I was little with my dad, like I knew who Cronenberg was. Because I knew about The Fly, I knew about Dead Zone, Videodrome, Scanners. And so I saw this, and then I forget when I learned it was uh, by Cronenberg. I was like, shut the fuck up. It, it, <laughs> it, it really is because the like history of violence has a more internal uh, take on what he likes to do. So it's not, mm-hmm. it doesn't externalize itself in the form of the body horror. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it is interesting to see how you can watch the evolution of his filmography from body horror into this examination of the psyche and the horrors mm-hmm. within. Like, it's interesting how he oh, moved yeah. away and never really lost sight of his own thematic through line. Like, mm-hmm. he's always kept it. I've still never seen uh, Cosmopolis um, or Map to the Stars, but it seems like that that thread was carried on because like Eastern promises follows in similar categories, you know? So yeah, I was actually just about to bring that up. So uh, Eastern promises came out in 2007, also starring Viggo Mortensen. So this is like the budding of their like best friendship because like they're now like really good friends and everything now and still are close friends. And to the point where like, so, okay. So before I get to this point, sorry. Um, but yeah, so like, yes, uh, with Eastern Promises and A History of Violence, that was kind of like the birth of Cronenberg truly getting into the more psychological thrillers. And so, and also a fun fact about it, it's, okay, so remember how I talked about earlier, how he said he doesn't like doing other people's work. I, uh, when he talked about doing uh, Star Wars. Yeah. So I, what I, th- I almost think that he was being sarcastic and funny to the guy because if when you go through all his entire catalog, most of his movies, including uh, the the his last several movies, so I'm gonna go uh, his last uh, last five big movies that he made that like had any any type of critical appeal um, was A History of Violence, 2005's A History of Violence, 2007 Eastern Promises, 2011 A Dangerous Method. 2012 Cosmopolis and 2014 Maps to the Stars, they're all books. They're all based off of novels or a graphic novel. So I almost think that he was kind of trolling Dis- uh, trolling Lucasfilms at that point. Like, yeah, I don't do other people's work unless it was a <laughs> book. 
<laughs> like, unless it was a it, book. It's his long, it's his long delayed fuck you. <laughs> yeah, so it was just, I just kind of thought that funny because Cosmopolis, Maps to the Stars, uh, and History of Violence, I know for sure were all novels. Well, History of Violence was a graphic novel, and then uh, he turned it into a book. But um, yeah, and so I just wanted to bring that up because 2014's Maps to the Stars was Cronenberg's last big movie that he made last uh silver screen movie he made surprising like even to now yeah it has <laughs> like, been a long time and, since we've had him on the screen it's strange mm-hmm. and so in an interview back in 2016 uh talking to vigo mortensen uh he ca- he kind of uh said that it, he he believes because they've been working together and they've been trying to make another movie they were originally going to do a sequel to eastern promises but it ended up getting dropped and he said that he believes Cronenberg's actually going to be retiring from the directing chair because one, a lot of the films he he actually tried to get during this time. Because let's see, since since History of Violence came out with one, two, three, four, four films, so five fil- six films in all of the two th- since two thousand and two, like it's twenty twenty, and all, Spider was two, the first two thousands movie. He's only made six films, and a big reason is because a lot of them get dropped during this time because. They, they don't want to fund his movies and also because a lot of films don't want to fund his movies a lot of production companies like don't want to fund Cronenberg movies because either they're too off the wall or they're not a Cronen as Cronenberg as they can be I guess he can't win um, like, you know, exactly and so after all this um Cronenberg deci- uh, hasn't directed a movie but he has been writing books and novels and became a fa- famous novelist uh finally <laughs> like because that was a thing that he always wanted to do and uh and funny enough I, it, it's still kind of up in the air it might have gotten dropped by now but his book his 2014 book consumed was actually picked up to be a tele a tv series and it was supposed to have been picked it but it was passed on by netflix in 2020 so it's still kind of like he's still trying to get that made into a TV series and it'll be his first like TV series. And also fun fact about David Cronenberg, if people didn't know, he is actually a little bit of an actor because um, <laughs> he actually include he was an actor in his own works like The Fly. He had a, a cameo in that, a cameo in Dead Ringers. He stars in Nightbreed. And I think one of the funniest things that I ever that I saw, he's in Jason X. Yeah, his Oscar-winning role in Jason X. Nobody talks about the fact that he won a secret Oscar for he this won, movie. Uh, he won an Oscar for Jason X. Yeah, he won a secret Oscar, Cody. It's 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 a, a an Oscar that exists between you, me, and Matt that we just gave to him. <laughs> Why the hell? I, I, now here's the thing. Is given our discussion, it makes complete and utter sense that he came over to do Jason X because he likes having fun. He's in the stupids. It's not like he yeah. doesn't like to not have fun. Um, mm-hmm. But he has such a fun... Like First of all, Jason X is a fun movie. Anybody hates that movie, they're just not having a fun time, to my mind. Yeah, that's all it is. Yeah. It's just for fun. It's, it's Jason in space. You, you, you literally don't have to look any further than that. His role at the beginning, where he's literally just going like, "No, no, no, we're going to take Jason away. Like, we're going to be studying him for the government." <laughs> like, just <laughs> <laughs> it's just really cool to just be like, you're walking into Jason X, not thinking like, you know, I'm just going to see a Jason movie, a bunch of unknown actors, and my favorite machete, machete wielding hockey mask hero or villain, and then <laughs> he's a hero to some. 
And uh, and then suddenly you're watching it, and all of a sudden David Cronenberg shows up. I think like the reaction of every single like horror fan in the world was like, "What are you doing here, David?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna study Jason. Okay, fine. We're on board. Right on. <laughs> Don't care. <laughs> gonna get killed by Jason. Go buy my novels. Oh, and he gets killed in a fun way by no, Jason he, too. Like it's like yeah, a, he gets it, booted out the door, doesn't he? Yeah, and he gets that. I think he gets that like fucking uh, uh, that pole through him at one point. Like, yeah, it's, it's like he gets a nice brutal death. Like, the, the director of that film was just like, I'm making the most out of this cameo right now because like, I think believe part of it was David Cronenberg said like, I'll do it if I get killed, and he's like, right on. Like, you don't refuse that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yep. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would. Do. And he was a director so. on Friday the Thirteenth, the series at one point in '87. So, like, because he's done mm-hmm. television work too. So it's like he might have an affinity yeah. for the for the franchise. Yeah. Um. Cool. So, like, some cool things about Cronenberg now too, like, is that so a lot of his studios too, a lot of his films that we don't know about, and like, uh, even some of his older horror films and stuff like that. He it, they were only released in Canada. In like UK, he actually has a bunch of short films that he never released here in America and stuff like that. And so, like, that's kind of like what he did during all that like downtime, mm-hmm. I guess I would say, in between <laughs> all these movies. Um, but yeah, no, there was that. And then just the most recent thing about David Cronenberg, just to wrap up Mr. Cronenberg's like filmography and life and stuff like that, is that um, back in February of 2021, this year, this year. Um, Vigo Mortensen and Cronenberg have talked about that they are working on something again, and that's supposed to be more of a strange film noir film uh, movie. And in April of this year, they finally dropped the title um, that the movie is going to be called Crimes of the Future, and that they're going to start. They're supposed to start shooting the movie in the summer of 2021. So maybe they started shooting it, maybe not, because you know, COVID. Guys, we need to get on that set. We need to find a way so. to get on that set. <laughs> so hopefully it's there but yeah and so that's that's cronenberg that's his like his whole entire filmography life and everything i hope you guys you guys enjoyed it yeah i hope you enjoy i hope you enjoyed it too because like i i i like doing this a lot guys because you helped (laughs) me being asked to do this and going through his work and watching like four of those pieces back to back to back the appreciation factor for Cronenberg for me like went up even further than it was already there. Like it just really kind of watching his themes synchronize with each other was an absolute blast. Like this was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love this. Oh, listeners, ghouls, gals, creeps, and mutants alike. Cronenberg is a legendary director, an iconic mind in himself. I mean, he He's brought so many alternative themes and out of nowhere sights to be seen to the film screen. And honestly, he's 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 going to be remembered for a long time. I mean, whether it is you watch Crash, whether it is you watch The Fly, whether it is you watch Scanners or read any of his novels. I mean, you know, Cronenberg is in a class of his own. He's been riding that wave for so long. And the fact that he's just a champion of the indie scene as well is it brings high respect from us. Um, Zach, thank you again for hanging out with us, for talking Cronenberg, for talking Crash, for talking uh, everything film-wise. Where can everybody go to support you again and everything that you're doing? Well, if you've gotten past my Crash review, um, the... Uh... <laughs> 
that's the, that's the moment where some people decide like, I don't think I want to hear his opinions no more. Um, uh, no, uh, you could find me at, um, real nerds podcast.com, uh, for the real nerds podcast and for yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Um, that's R E V U E. You can find us at ballyhoreviewpodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Um, and if you want a good entry point episode, all you uh, all you lovely par- punk rock horror podcast fans out there, go to Matt and Cody's episode where we did Gajira and the Blob. It was an absolute blast to do it with these guys. And Matt has two appearances on um, the Real Nerds feed through Shamley Silhouette where we talked about stage fright and the birds. Um the birds conversation is fun because we 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 turn the birds into diva actors in the that conversation. It's still one of my favorite things to go back and listen to. Um, but yeah, um, and yeah, and uh, my short film "Heavy Hangs the Sky." Um, we're still wor- we're working on the edit right now, so stay tuned for that. But I do have a short film from last year called Leather Brown, which you can uh, check out on Vimeo by just looking up Leather Brown um, or looking up uh, the lead actress Risa Scott um, and. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I guess I can, I guess I can tease this a little bit on your guys' things. I'm actually writing a book right now <laughs> or like working on writing oh, a book. Nice. Um, Ooh. yeah, not, not a Cronenberg novel. I'm not writing consume too. Um, oh, but, well, I don't want to hear it. Now, now hold on now. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a book about a comedian named Jack Benny, who I've been fascinated with since I was a kid and his cinema career is the one thing about him that's. Uh, some of the most elusive things because he was not a successful film actor despite being one of the top comedians of his era up until the moment of his death. And so I've been doing research into his film work starting as far back as 1929 into basically up to the moment when he was about to do a movie in 74 before he passed away from pancreatic cancer. Um, so yeah, uh, that, that'll be years from now. I'll come back and we'll do another Cronenberg retrospective and I'll tell you guys when you can find it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. Well, I'm hooked again. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's still very exciting to hear and we'll have those links in the episode notes below. And listeners, if you want to keep up with everything, punk rock horror podcast, we'll make it quick at the, because now it's like the two hour point of the show. So we'll make it quick. Longer episodes. Yeah. You know where to follow us. You know where to like us. Facebook, punk rock horror podcast on Twitter at official PRHP or on Instagram, punk rock horror podcast, hashtag PRHP podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram at the undead Matt and Cody on Twitter at at Krampus Cody. Please check us out. Follow us on Slasher as well and check out slashingcast.net. Please check them out. And again, support Zach and everything he is doing. He's he's a magnificent man. He's a magnificent person, a brilliant mind, and we are glad we can call him a colleague and a friend. I, uh, by Zach, the way, I forgot. I, I forgot I had Twitter. Shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I guess you could you could follow me at Zach Real Nerd, R-E-E-L, and uh, Ballyhoo Review uh, for Twitter. Like, yeah, if uh, they... I've inter- I've I've liked actually going through the the punk rock horror podcast Twitter page because you've guys got some wonderful conversations going on there and you've got a lovely fan base an absolutely lovely group of ghouls and gals I really really appreciate it you know yeah we're pre- we're pretty fond of them too we we try to tell them to not be you know bite so many pieces of flesh off at a time but hey you know we got you, you, they got to eat too they got to eat stop they, <laughs> stop eating babies just. <laughs> unless um, unless they are babies that are going to become Hitler number two, then keep. <laughs> and, I, and I misspoke. It's boils and ghouls. You know, that's, yeah. 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 <laughs> keep keep my cheeky humor intact. <laughs> With that in mind, ghouls, gals, creeps, mutants alike. Please take care of each other. Please watch out for each other. 
And thank you again for supporting the Punk Rock Horror Podcast. And we will talk about horror with you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Long live the new flesh.